0: Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent 4th Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental, The Senior Convener, Osius of Cordoba. As we close out the 350s and the helter-skelter confusion of dueling creeds and shifting imperial allegiances, we should take a moment to pause and note one of the most significant deaths in the whole Nicene Saga. In the year 359, Osius of Cordoba passed away at over 100 years of age. Now, I know exactly what you are probably thinking. Who on earth is Osius of Cordoba? Because I haven't mentioned him up until now, except for one throwaway reference in last week's episode that you've probably already forgotten. Osius suffered that uncomfortable fate of being a second-tier actor all throughout the main plot. He wasn't as doctrinally creative as Arius or Alexander or the Eusebi. He wasn't as politically significant as Athanasius or Constantine. But he was always there, in the background, gently shepherding the controversy along. And now that he has just passed away in our narrative, it seems time to bring him, for one moment at least, from the background into the spotlight. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first, after all. So this time, let's take a look at Osius of Cordoba, advisor to emperors, senior convener, and to some, a centogenarian heretic. As best we know, Osius of Cordoba was actually born in Cordoba, the same city where he was a bishop. That makes him one of the very few characters in this story with good manners for future historians. This also means that he was Hispanic by ethnicity, the only bishop from the far west of the empire to play a significant role in our Nicene story. And he was there for most of that story. Osius of Cordoba was apparently born all the way back in 256 A.D. This meant that at the time of the Council of Nicaea, he would have already been about 69 years old, which is a pretty nice old age by the standards of his day. One of the perks of age and seniority, of course, is that you get to be in charge of stuff. And most scholars think... That after Constantine gave his big opening speech to the council, he turned the reins over to Osius and said, You take it from here, champ, and let Osius run the rest of the proceedings. That's right, the person presiding over the council that would create this creed that we're still talking about and saying and arguing about and producing podcasts about, 1700 years later, was Osius of Cordoba. He was presiding over this really pivotal moment. And perhaps that's fitting, since Ossius would have had as good a grasp as anyone of the history that had led to that point. He had grown up when Christianity was still technically illegal during the troubles of the 3rd century. He had suffered in the great persecution of Diocletian. He had witnessed Constantine's miraculous conversion to Christianity and now he saw the empire embroiled in the throes of Trinitarian controversy. He would have understood better than most the collective traumas the church had endured, as well as the sense of opportunity and danger that haunted its first years as a state religion. We know very little about his ministry during those tumultuous years before the Council of Nicaea, Osius was present at a local Spanish council in about 300 that took a pretty hard line against readmitting those who had lapsed in the Great Persecution. Some imperial court documents show he was present in Constantine's court around 313 or so, and that's basically it. That's really all we know. But whatever else he did, he was much loved for it. Osius appears to have been a universally respected figure, Constantine recognized that. That's why Osius became one of his most important religious advisors. Osius, in other words, had the job that poor Eusebius of Caesarea had always wanted, being the one the emperor most readily turned to when he needed counsel. This was not always as glamorous a job as Eusebius might have imagined. Sometimes it just meant being Constantine's gopher. For example, Remember when Constantine wrote those fruitless letters to Alexander and Arius, telling them to knock it off? Who do you think he sent? Did he go himself? As if he would deliver his own mail. A soldier or a civil servant? No, not impressive enough. The job fell to poor old Osius, who was being ordered to schlep all over the greater Roman Empire in his mid-60s just to deliver some mail to people who were going to turn around and ignore it. But sometimes the job was a bit more exciting. Many scholars think that Osius was one of Constantine's speechwriters, and that the opening address Constantine gave at the Council of Nicaea was actually Osius' writing. Now, we aren't going to go into that speech in detail, because it's mostly full of the same kind of pop theological arguments we've already covered with Lactantius and with the oration and praise of Constantine. There is one god who is good, but people worship other beings as gods, which is bad. So Jesus came to teach us about the one true God, which is good. But then we got persecuted for it, which is bad. But now the emperor is one of us and helps us build cool churches and stuff, which is good. Not exactly riveting or groundbreaking stuff. There is one argument in here, though, that I will kick myself if I let you leave this podcast without knowing about. Osius tells us that the birth of Christ was predicted by pagan prophets not just Jewish ones. We saw, of course, a version of these arguments with Lactantius, but Osius takes it in a different direction. He cites a few lines from one of the Sibyls. The Sibyls, that's S-I-B-Y-L-S, were pagan prophetesses of Apollo, who often also served as priestesses at holy sites. The Oracle of Delphi was a Sibyl, as was the athraean sibyl, who conveniently resided at the town of Athrae, on the central western coast of modern-day Turkey. She, or they, there actually may have been more than one of them, we aren't quite sure, apparently invented the use of the acrostic. As some of you probably know, an acrostic is a poem in which the first letter of each line spells out a word or sentence. The prophetess would give her prophecies in acrostic poems, and her listeners, foolishly not recognizing the new literary form that had just been invented right in front of them, would try to interpret the prophecy without the nifty little code, and would usually fail. Oracles are only as good as their interpreters, after all. Anyway, the sibyl reportedly gave one prophecy that spelled out in Greek, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, Cross. You can imagine why Christians would have been really excited about this. It was proof that their God could speak, even through the mouths of a different deity's prophets. And I have to admit, this poem does sound pretty Christ-like. So here it is in full. Do know this has been creatively rewarded so that the acrostic works in English. But it also makes the poem a little bit more enjoyable. And I quote, Judgment Earth's oozing pores shall mark the day, Earth's heavenly king his glories shall display. Sovereign of all exalted on his throne, Unnumbered multitudes their god shall own, Shall see their judge with mingled joy and fear, Crowned with his saints in human form appear. How vain while desolate earth's glories lie, Riches and pomp and man's idolatry! In that dread hour, when nature's fiery doom Startles the slumbering tenants of the tomb, Trembling all flesh shall stand, each secret while Sins long-forgotten thoughts of guilt and guile, Open beneath God's searching light shall lie, No refuge then, but hopeless agony. Or heaven's expanse shall gathering shades of night, From earth, sun, stars, and moon withdraw their light, God's arm shall crush each mountain's towering pride. On ocean's plain, no more shall navies ride. Dried at the source, no river's rushing sound shall soothe, no fountain slake the parched ground. Around afar shall roll the trumpet's blast, voice of wrath long delayed, revealed at last. In speechless awe, while earth's foundations groan, on judgment's seat, earth's kings their God shall own. Uplifted then in majesty divine, radiant with light, behold salvation's sign. Cross of that Lord, who once for sinners given, reviled by man, now owned by earth and heaven. Or every land extends his iron way. Such is the name these mystic lines display. Quote. Now, Osius is well aware that these lines may seem too good to be true. He knows that some pagans will allege these words are a forgery written by a Christian just to stir up belief. This was a pretty common phenomenon in late antiquity, and not just with Christians. Those of all ideologies were not above a white lie if it got others to believe their story was the true one. But that's definitely not what is going on here, Osius says. For he quoted the lines of the poem from a work of Cicero who died before Jesus was even born. So there's no way this could be a forgery, guys. It's the genuine article. Of course, there is a way this could be a forgery, which is that a Christian edited Cicero's works after he died and put this poem in that collection. But then Osius can object that there's no way to prove the text was edited after Cicero's death. That's the really good thing about a forgery allegation. They are very difficult to definitively rule out. If all the evidence points to it being genuine, then it's just a really good forgery. If there's the usual wear and tear of transcriber errors, that can be turned into proof of malicious intent. All of which is to say that it's a difficult argument to prove one way or another. But, whatever the truth of it, it's a very fun argument, and that poem is very well written no matter who the author was. The road to Nicaea would be vastly improved if more of it was brought to you by meter and an AABB rhyme scheme, in my opinion. Osius is by no means the only one to make this case, but given that he has done so much without credit in our narrative, I thought it only right to let him present this case to you. Osius's role in the years after Nicaea is a bit easier to pin down. He continues to serve as a senior statesman throughout Constantine's reign and that of his sons. He is also a pretty stout defender of Nicaea's creed, unsurprising since he was the one who presided. He was also a pretty stout defender of Athanasius. Apparently, Otius put in a good ward for Athanasius to Constantius once Constantine died, and that helped end one of the Alexandrian bishops' many, many exiles. When Constantius began to aggressively push his Homoian solution in the 350s, Osius wrote him a strongly worded letter telling him to back off and let the bishops tend to the church without state interference. This was a bold move, no doubt about it. But perhaps Osius figured that since he had been a bishop before Constantius had even been in diapers, he could use his seniority for good. And at the very least, he wasn't punished for it. You will occasionally hear scholars say that during this time period, the west of the empire was consistently pro-Nicene while the east was more ambivalent. This is an overgeneralization and a very bad thing to say. My point in bringing it up is that when people who say this talk about the west, who they're actually talking about is Osius of Cordoba. For he basically was stoutly in favor of Nicaea his whole life. He presided over the council, he insisted on its legitimacy, and he defended Athanasius against his enemies which is what made it all the more shocking when, in 357, he signed on to the blasphemy of Sirmium. That's right. At age 101, Osius of Cordoba signed on to a decree that banned the use of the very language Nicaea had enshrined. Why? Since he didn't write any memoirs, we don't know firsthand what Osius was thinking. His pro-Nicene contemporaries make a few guesses, though, and they aren't very nice. One writer says that Osius was, and I quote, already in love with the tomb. In other words, ready to die, and so he didn't want to make another big fuss. It goes to show that ageism has always been with us. Others assume that he was coerced into signing the blasphemy, that it took force to turn this resolute defender against Nicaea. We do know, however, that Osius had been asked to do two things, to condemn Athanasius as a heretic and to sign on to the decree of Sirmium. He refused to do the former and agreed to the latter. So it may be that Osseus was less concerned with the particularities of the language used, whether it was usia or something else. His first priority appears to have been protecting his friend's integrity. People of good faith could argue in compromise about words, But people of good faith do not call other people of good faith heretics. At least that's the most we can plausibly reconstruct of Osius' decision-making process. Some later sources tell us that Osius' tolerance for the blasphemy of Sirmium lasted only a short while, and shortly afterwards he recanted it. It's unclear whether this is historical fact, or a desperate attempt to salvage the long legacy of one of Nicaea's stoutest defenders. In either case, we know that just two years later, Osius passed away, and with him, the last link to the pre-Constantinian church. Amazing, isn't it, that a single life can encompass so much? When Osius was born, Origen of Alexandria had only been dead for a few decades, and the christian church was still a persecuted minority he died seeing his faith at the height of its political power and also at the height of the state's power over it he saw bishops and emperors rise and fall theologies wax and wane and through it all he remained steadfast almost up until the end because in the end osseus was a human being like others blown about by forces not under his control, and not always consistent with his own principles. It makes him a less useful idol, but I think also a more sympathetic human. And on a journey this long, with this much confusion and frustration, there are far worse things to have than another human being to quietly, steadily, and unassumingly keep you company along the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.